Hey everyone, my name is Ryan Griggs. I'm the host of the Renaissance podcast. Alongside me is AJ Richards, someone that I've been really looking forward to, especially talking about the, the supply food chain. Thank you for coming, AJ. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. So I guess to get started, um, if you just want to give a little background behind everything you're doing with Utah Beef Producers and what made you want to do that. Yeah, so Utah Beef Producers is a uh, consulting position that I have with um, a gentleman named Henry Barlow out of Richfield, Utah. This is a guy, he owns a, co- a concrete and construction company in Salt Lake. And, you know, in 2020, when things really started going nuts, I've met a lot of people across the nation who kind of were impressed to get involved. Most of the people I've met will sell, will just tell you directly that it was God that impressed them to get involved. Um, and I'm one of those people. And that was where the software came from. But on the Utah beef producers side, that's what happened with Henry. Like things started breaking. A lot of us kind of already knew that some, that it wasn't right, that these big companies were taking over and that it was squeezing out the rancher. But then when COVID hit and it really showed the vulnerability of the supply chain, people got started. And Henry's somebody that had the capital because of his other construction companies. He owns just enough cattle to have a, a, an intelligent conversation about owning cattle. Um, but not enough to warrant millions and millions of dollars of his personal money put into a meat plant, <laughs> right? Like you would do that if you owned a lot of cattle and you wanted to buck the system. He did mm-hmm. it because he, he, you know, in his words, got impressed in that you need to go do something. And so he took his capital and his know-how and they bought the building I'm sitting in now. It's almost 40,000 square feet. Uh, it used to be a beer distribution warehouse. And because they're contractors, they started building so it's it's owner operator owner owner builder, which has been really cool because as we're walking through the plant to to make sure that it's being built the way we want, if we want to change something, it's like change the next day. It's not weeks of engineering reviews and and approvals. It's like okay, cool. So like our our fabrication floor where we cut and wrap, we had offices. We have offices off to the side, and the fabrication floor right next to it. And we're like, we don't need that big of offices. Let's add six more feet to the fabrication floor. And so that's our moneymaker. Let's, you know, that's where we're going to be able to get more animals processed through. And we just did it. The next day, the, the line was moved. So how I got involved is my chief technology advisor for, uh, from the farm, our feed the people, buy the people software. It's his cousin. And he had a, he just happened to run into him. That's a big family, so they they don't talk all the time. But happened to run into him at a family event. They started talking, and then my my uh, partner advisor Isaac Barlow said, "Hey, my cousin's building this plant in Richfield." And I thought I had my ear to the ground and knew everything going on because I've made it a point to try to know as much as I can, at least in my region. Right? I couldn't possibly know that nationwide, but I'm like, "There's no way." And I get on the phone, talk to the guy, and sure enough, this because it's privately done, he just kept his mouth shut and went to work. Like he's a don't talk about it, be about it kind of guy. And so he just went to work, brought his own crew from his construction company, a crew of like less than 10 guys led by a guy named Ed and JJ that work for him. And when you, when you know, someday, Brian, I'm going to have you out here and go on a tour because this place is amazing. And Thank um, you. Yeah. And so he just reached out to me and I was in a transition phase because I'd moved to Cody, Wyoming and was running a small USDA meat plant. And 
what I knew that needed to be done wasn't being heard by the owners, which, and the owners have no experience in this space whatsoever. It was just a pure investment for them. And so it wasn't right for me to spend my time there because it wasn't going to go anywhere. And so I was in this, tra- I mean, I'm a believer in God and he put Henry in my path at the exact right time because we're building this app, but I don't have the fun. I, I don't have the funds to just build the app, mm-hmm. right? It's my, it's my big vision side hustle that was impressed on me to get done, but I still got to put food on the table for my family. And so Utah Beef Producers is located in Richfield, Utah. We can hit 25% of the nation's meat eaters. So because wow. of its geographical location, we can ship to the entire West Coast. And when I say West Coast, I'm talking Texas North and over. Um, now, I think people should find and source meat as close to home as possible. but the reality is our supply chain is broken. So there are going to be people in areas that are going to need the ca- the capabilities and capacities that we have as long as there's, you know, shipping services like UPS and FedEx on the road. Um, my experience running a meat plant and being involved in the supply chain for the last, you know, four years, really kind of looking at it from an outside perspective, what can change? You know, a lot of times we do a job and we think it needs to be done a certain way and we've been in it for a long time and it's hard to see other paths to success. Um, and then somebody new comes in and they're like, hey, what if you did this? And if you're in control of your ego enough to hear it, it might change everything and be positive, right? And so only our egos that are like, you're new, shut up, Greenhorn, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I'm, you know, I'm a fifth generation family family rancher, but I'm the city slicker cousin. So I have enough of an outside perspective to bring new ideas that I may not have seen if I grew up in ranching, like doing the chores every day, you know, all that I just didn't grow up that way. So I come to it with an outside perspective enough to say, okay, what's broken here and how can we fix it without my ego being threatened that, well, this is how dad did it. We shouldn't do it that way because dad did it this way. So uh, that's the same thing with Henry. He's bringing a new idea. So this plant, we are going to do, we're building this thing to be completely different than what the old school mentality is. The old school mentality is it's owned by mom and pop. They sit on the cutting floor. Their job really is to take your beef, cut and wrap, give it back to you. That's it. That's my job. Well, that world has changed. You're going to go bankrupt if that's all you do as a small meat plant. You have to find other ways to bring in sources of revenue. And that looks like, Ryan, I'm going to buy cattle from you and I'm going to meet, I'm going to process them and I'm going to put my label on it. My customer is still going to know you as the small meat plant. I'll say, yeah, I, I'm here. Let's say I'm in Cody. I'm in Cody. I know Little Belt Cattle Co. down the road. I know um, Carver Country Meats down the road. I buy from them and we package it and sell it to the customers. That's going to bring a little bit more revenue for me as the meat plant so I can stay viable. So those are the kinds of things we're, we're changing and doing, as well as teaching ranchers how to go direct. We're a big part of our goals here at Utah Beef Producers is to provide consulting services for our customers so they can reach more people locally so we can start fixing this food supply chain. So there's a lot of great stuff out of that. I guess to get started (laughs) with that, um, if we could just talk a little bit about just uh, just an overview of the supply chain and how we've gotten to where we are now. For example, the fact that 85% of just beef producers, I mean, it's all very centralized with JBS and all these other mega corporations that are global, essentially. 
uh, yeah, I just was hoping for you to just shed some some awesome information as to what's going on in that food system and how are you coming in and, and really changing that? Yeah, yeah, great question. Uh, and it's one that I think more people should be aware of, right? Uh, because it's it, human beings need three things, food, shelter, safety, food being number one. Now, mm -hmm. don't come at me about water. I put water in with food. Of course we need food. Other people are like, <laughs> oh, what about air? And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> food, shelter, safety, food being number one. You control the food, you control the population. And I don't mean that to say that that is or isn't happening. I'm just saying that's how important it is. That, that, that quote exists because that is true. In 1930s in Soviet Union, uh, there was this event called Holodomor, and you should look it up, uh, any of the listeners. The Holodomor was an event between 1932 and 1933 where, the, where Stalin, um, millions of people died because they didn't have access to food. Their food supply chain broke. Now, the argument is that it's a weak argument, but there's an argument. Well, it was either, in, was it intentional or just poor management? Doesn't matter. Regardless, millions of people died because the system was affected, right? And so in 1980, the big corporations, they're not the same as they are today, but in 1980, in the 80s, like 82 or 83, they controlled 25% of the market. That's it. The rest of the 75% was broken up nationwide between family farms and ranches, local butcher shops, and meat plants. We weren't so globally connected and then therefore centralized. Uh, President Reagan changed the antitrust laws that allowed for corporations to merge and buy up other corporations. The only thing that they looked at during that decision was that it won't make an impact on the cost of food for the consumer. That was their primary filter when deciding whether or not to allow the removal of these antitrust laws that were put in place. Uh, as with most government decisions, they're not looking at it from a holistic point of view, like the whole. So they were concerned about one demographic, which is the consumer. It's understandable. They should. But they didn't look at the long-term effect and impact on the small farms and ranches. So by the year 2000, we had lost 40% of all our small farms and ranches nationwide. 40%. Now we lose 14,000 small farms and ranches every single year. Well, in 1980, it's like, okay, I can make you a promise because I don't have a crystal ball. We'll make sure the prices stay, stay affordable. You fast forward to 2023, they have 85% of the market. And so it doesn't matter whether prices are affordable for consumers or not. They're not going to be because there are far less producers and we're importing more beef. You know, last year, the uh, no, sorry, the beginning of this year, we imported 11% more cattle. When I say cattle, they were slaughtered in other countries and then shipped over here. 11% more, something like 900 million pounds because of supply chain shortages. Well, really, to me, what that means is they just don't want to pay 
more because they're the, the big guys don't want to pay more because of the shortages because it's worth more right now. Oh, well, we're going to circumvent that and we're going to bring it in from Paraguay, from South Africa, from Brazil, from all these other countries to buy it cheaper there because at least as of right now, the dollar has some value and we're going to bring it over on a ship and then we're going to cut and wrap it in the US. Oh, and by the way, we're, we have the authority through the USDA to label it product of the USA. And all we did was cut and wrap it here. So this accumulation has happened since the 80s where big companies buy smaller companies, they get bigger, so then they buy the next one. Like right now, Albertsons and Kroger are going through a merger. I know. And that's, wow. Those are two big grocery chains. Yeah, and also right huge. now, Yep. And right now, the largest beef producer in the world, JBS, is going through IPO. They're trying to go public, which, I mean… You start getting politicians involved in the in the financial returns on a large conglomerate like JBS. Good luck changing any policies or laws once they've got their grubby little hands in the in the in the ROI of a business like that. What's so really interesting like with a, that? Yeah, I, was, I mean, just to add on to that, it's just interesting because JBS is Brazil. Smithfield Foods is now owned by China, and so <laughs> I don't know. It's just interesting. And then talking about how we import so much. When we have some of the best farmland in the world, obviously from a land standpoint, we have an insane amount of land to where we could easily cover all of this, yet we're just exporting or we're just outsourcing everything. And that's just wild. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's a really good book called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. Don't know the author's name. Sorry. I think it's Peter Zihon, but I'm just pulling that out of my ass. Um, <laughs> it's a great book because the guy who wrote it, is a geopolitical scientist and he breaks down basically all the countries around the globe for the most part and what they can and can't do on their own. And America is unique in the way that it can do everything. Now we have forsaken our infrastructure of our factories and farmed them out. So we can't do everything right now, but America has all of its natural resources, not just America, like the, the, the North American continent. We have everything we need on this landmass to to sustain life, even as we know it. Um, but because of that, we live in excess and we waste lots. And um, then we have these big companies that are purely focused on extracting as much profit out of a system as possible. And so they don't make decisions holistically. And now it's biting us in the butt. So whenever you mention you're saying uh, that they now control about 85%. Can you talk about just the top ones? Because we've mentioned JBS and Smithfield yeah. Foods. Um, yeah. Yeah, and not just with beef, but because also chicken with Tyson. If you could just talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, four major companies control the beef market. That's the one I know most, uh, I know the most about. That's Cargill, JBS, Purdue, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, Cargill, JBS, Tyson, and National Beef. Tyson bought out Smithfield. That was the merger. And so, yeah, JBS and JBS is Brazilian. Uh, uh, Tyson is Chinese owned. Um, Cargill is a privately owned American company, but Cargill is under major hot water right now for significantly unethical practices in Brazil. Um, so if you just do a Google search on Cargill, like they're so 
we don't have any good options in the U.S. when it comes to our large producers. That's why we need a fundamental transformation across the whole supply chain. Um, in the chicken space, Purdue is the uh, one of the major chicken producers. Um, I know a little bit about them. They were on, they were kind of a target on a documentary that that's on Netflix that came out pretty recently. Um, uh, I don't have much to say about how they were presented in the documentary. I don't know enough about it. I, I know that, you know, if, if agendas can be made no matter what, and I don't know what the agenda of the film was, it was decent, but um, I know that uh, Paul from Pasture Bird, is it Pasture Bird? Yeah, Pasture Bird. Yeah. He merged with with Purdue, and that's what's allowed them to innovate their their mobile chicken tractors as a partnership like that. And at first when I heard Paul had merged, I was like, what? Join the enemy. <laughs> yeah. But I've heard Paul on a few podcasts and, and uh, he's not wrong. And he's, he's kind of innovating and leading the way. And, and what I mean by that is he said, if we, you know, if we don't find a way to incorporate the, incorporate the big guys who are interested in doing things re- re- differently, which specifically he's talking about regenerative uh, practices. And I'm, I'm a huge proponent of that. Um, I mean, we should, right. If they're selling millions and millions of birds and he can be the influence to make a transition or big, bring a bigger impact. That's a good thing. Now he's done it in a way where he stayed involved and that's why it's run the way it has. I mean, if he, if he merged and then just went and lived on a beach, I don't think it would maintain its, its core values, but, um, uh, that's what I know on the chicken side. Pork, pork is decimated. Uh, lamb and sheep are decimated. 75% of the lamb in our country, sold in our country, is imported. So lamb is wow. like the canary in the coal mine for the beef producers. So while you have the big four, Cargill, JBS, National Beef, and Tyson, that are controlling the profitability and the revenue in the marketplace, we still have a lot of beef that's raised here. We export the same number of, almost, we export about the same amount of beef that we import, um, which gets into the conversation about why emissions in the ag space is so high. It's not the livestock. It's the people running the industry. It's their practices that are causing it. Cow farts and burps are not the cause of emissions. It's that they shipped a tanker full of it from South Africa to the U.S. You know, one super tanker on the ocean is equivalent to 40,000 cars on the highway. So that's why there's that saying, it's not the cow, it's the how. You know, yeah, no, I love that you brought that up because animal agriculture is being pinned on climate change. It's huge push. And I see articles all the time. I remember seeing an article about Ireland that they were going to kill I don't know, two, three hundred thousand cattle. Yeah. Yet, if you look at their 2023 imports versus 2022, it was increased by 10 percent up for exporting and importing. It's so why if they have these huge issues, why are they still? doing all of this importing and not using the local beef that they already have. It just does not make sense. Um, so th- yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up for, for that. Cause it is such a major problem that most don't realize, especially in America, I guess my yep. next question, then it's kind of transitioning just a little bit. Um, Cause you're talking about wanting to do more direct to consumer with the ranching uh, with the ranchers specifically. I remember I visited a ranch last June, I believe. And he was with a local processing plant and trying to schedule ahead whenever he wants to process cattle. And it was for September of this year. And that 
was the first time to make me realize, wow, that is a huge bottleneck. I guess, can you just explain the whole processing, or I guess the whole process of the processing plants? Um, how how do you have to set that up? How is I guess talking about the regulations of all of all of that because it just seemed like there weren't any processing plants nearby, and it seems really tough to start one which is why he had to schedule 14 months ahead to even mm -hmm. process his next set of cattle. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, when I set out to create this software um, and the software, we, we may, we'll talk about it later. We should, cause I'm referring to it so much and it's, it's important. But when I set out to create the, the software, I thought the biggest challenge, I mean, I was selling beef direct to consumer. I started doing that for my family's ranch in 2019 right at, towards the end of 2019. Um, we started growing. We were doing monthly subscriptions. That was great because now I knew exactly what my monthly reoccurring revenue was. And I knew how many cattle I needed to have ready for each following month. And I could project a, a, a growth you know, percentage on that. So it was, it was predictable. Well, when COVID hit, the large meat packers, this is where the centralization reared its ugly head significantly for the first time. <clears throat> You've got these meat plants that are slaughtering 1,000 to 6,000 head a day. They're just, they're machines. Your, your employees sit there and they, they make one cut as it's coming down the line all day. That's what they do. And so that's the, that's the primary system. Now, I just want to make this clear. We need the system we have for a while. It's going to take a long time to change. If we said, we're done with you, it's over, well, we'll starve because we're reliant on the system as it exists to fill our meat cases. So this is a trend. I mean, started in the 80s and got to where we are now in 2023. I think we can accelerate the transformation because of technology and, and messaging, but it's going to take time. So because of the sheer volume of people working in these plants, COVID killed them, shut them down, right? Uh, that the essential workers came back in, but now somebody gets COVID and it sweeps through the whole plant and you got people out sick. Well, when that happened, uh, uh, let me just preface this real quick. The way this works is you have a rancher who has mama cows and that mama cow has a baby cow. That baby cow gets raised by what's typically known as a cow-calf operation. In the West, most ranchers in the West are cow-calf meaning they have a mama cow, they have baby calves, and they sell those baby calves at a certain age and weight. Because they in the West, we don't have the forage or the, or the crop monocrop fields for the current system like corn and grain to fatten them because we're, there's not a lot of water in the West. So they'll raise that baby cow. And like in Utah, we send half a million calves to Nebraska. Because Nebraska is where all the big feedlots are. So half a million calves from Utah go to Nebraska. They get sold at an auction. That that auction buyer takes them to a feedlot. That feedlot fattens them up to a certain weight and then takes them to slaughter. Many of the big feedlots are now also owned by the big processing plants. So they have vertic vertically integrated. That's a smart business model because it's allowed them to scale the way they have. I advocate for vertically integrated systems, but I advocate it for on a localized level, not a national level, right? 
um, because then you're cutting out all the middlemen. Yeah. That's why they make so much profit. So it goes to that feedlot, they get fat, and then they go through the packer, the, the meat house. They get slaughtered, cut, and wrapped. Then they get sold into the supply chain at a wholesale price. That wholesale price is paid for by the grocery store or by the butcher shop or by you know whoever's taking a larger chunk of meat, and then they're going to cut it down into smaller chunks of meat that then the consumer is going to pay for. At every step, there's somebody making money, including the guy in the auction raising his auction flag. He gets paid. The auction house gets a percentage. So that's why the rancher gets somewhere between 14 and 30 cents on the dollar of their beef when it's when it goes into the regular system. Okay. Now, COVID hits. These meat plants, people can't go to work. And they're doing 1,000 to 6,000 head a day. Well, guess what happens to that? downstream effect. Now you've got all these fat cows. Like if you saw the news and they were talking about just killing pigs and pushing them in a pit, same with cows. It's because they can't afford to sit there and feed them, not knowing when they're this really on time moving machine. Now you've got a backup of a thousand to 6,000 head of cattle or pigs or whatever a day. Jeez. Yeah. Somebody's got to feed. So now that backs up. Well, then the rancher who's typically selling those at the auction he's like oh shit i can't keep these yeah so the small packers nationwide got inundated with slaughter from customers that they would have never had also people said crap i need to buy local so that's the good thing so now these small meat plants nationwide got more business that they could ever handle at the same time we've lost more prop small meat packers nationwide because of the uh consolidation that's been happening. So that's why this, that your rancher called like in 2020, when I was selling beef for my family's ranch, I quit because when COVID hit, I called my local processing that I was usually being able to get a week out. And they said, we can get you in in 12 to 18 months. Well, if you're waiting for a monthly subscription to be delivered and I can't get you a product, it's over. So yeah. for a little while, I literally drove to every single slaughterhouse in Utah that was USDA inspected just to try to keep my business going. And at some point, because the margins are so slim, it didn't make sense for the time, the fuel, the wear and tear on my vehicle just to do that. So I stopped. I had to. So that's what happened in our system that broke everything and why your guys are so backed up. What I learned when I went and ran a USDA meat plant, see, that's when I had this idea for the software, it was in when, when this was all going down, I was like, man, we are in trouble. Uh, and I started thinking about an experience I had in Iraq where I went into a village to, to take care packages. And we were the one feeding the family and the dad standing off the side with this, you know, look of, of desperation on his face. Now, I don't know what he was thinking. I'm not in his head. But the way I, I took it in was I don't ever want to be that guy who has to see somebody else feed his family. Yeah. And, and I never, honestly, I never thought about the, I, I, I've got a picture of me playing soccer with these kids with full battle rattle on, you know, and it was just like, <laughs> it was probably my favorite day there. So I wasn't thinking about him, but all of a sudden here we are and the vulnerability of our supply chain shows up mentally. And this memory from the recesses of my mind shows up and it's the look on this dad's face 
And I'm like, oh, geez. And, and I started getting really worried. Like I, my, frankly, my family was worried about my mental state during that time because internally I'm like, I don't want to see my kids be hungry. And so that's where this, this uh, software idea to, to buck our current system and connect people with local consumers and producers came in. Yeah. Can you elaborate more on, on the software and what's it called again? Yeah. So the software is going to be called From the Farm. Um, simply put, it's like Airbnb, but instead of a map showing short-term rentals that you can filter, you know, if I'm looking for a two bedroom house with a jacuzzi, I'm going to only see two bedroom houses with a jacuzzi, right? The app we're building is the exact same thing, but instead of rentals, it's local food growers. Now I'm going to open with meat because that's what I know, but it's being built for all food growers, including, including people that are growing herbs for medicinal purposes. Um, essentially, it's like, how do, we, how do we get out of the stores that have the products that we need for nutrition and for health and get localized and know the person? So our slogan is shake the hand that feeds you. And so that's what the app is. You can go on there and it'll be fully, all, fully uh, functioning in terms of end-to-end. You can find the producer, do the transaction, and schedule and coordinate delivery. Um, on the producer side, I, you know, having been in that space, um, I learned what they need to help make it more adoptable. So we're going to have uh, small farms and ranches. Homesteaders, I believe, are going to be um, our saving grace as a nation because while they might be small, they're mighty in number. And, you know, that's a huge movement that's taking off nationwide. I think I heard something like over one and a half million people have started homesteading since COVID. And so I think we're going to see a transition about the system as a whole. Like in the West, ranchers are being bought up by wealthy people that don't ranch. And, and in some cases, that land is being extracted from the production of food because they're like, mine, get out, cows. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. you just took 86,000 acres of prime Montana ranch land and removed that from this food supply chain. So I think we're going to see homesteaders with one acre to multiple acres come in and, and kind of save the day. Um, I also see the app being a huge service for people who want to become a homesteader. Somebody right now is sitting in a cubicle saying, F my life. I hate sitting in this cubicle. I've been reading Joe Salatin's books. I've come across Alex Savory. I know who Gabe Brown is. I wish I could go do that, but how do I make it work financially? Well, look what Airbnb did to short-term rentals. It allowed for so many people to get involved in a real estate venture that would have never done it because they didn't have all the skill sets for all of the operational components. Well, we're going to make it a plug and play. So now that person sitting in the cubicle is like, I'm out. I'm going to buy an acre. I'm going to do a small market garden. And from the farm, you know, God willing, has millions and millions of users nationwide that are waiting for me to produce food. That's what Airbnb did for people that had a room to rent or a, a, a side rental. So. It is imperative that we as a nation get back to knowing who is raising our food so that we can ask them, ask them the appropriate questions. We're the sickest we've ever been in history. 
We're probably the, I think it's safe to say we're probably the sickest society in the nation. And it's all related to our food, which is a hundred percent, in my opinion, related to profit as the focus, not the, not the health of the nation. You know, how many times have we heard that our, there are so many products on our store shelves that are completely banned and outlawed in other nations. And yet it gets, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say there, there's so many things. So with that too, children now it's nearly 65, 66% of their diets are ultra processed food, which is just horrendous. Um, I mean, I've personally been affected by what uh, can happen whenever you're eating the, the standard American diet. I mean, I lost my brother to cancer, watched all that unfold. Mm. Uh, and that's very common with yep. American. Now it's now becoming to the point to where 75% are, overweight, obese, and severely obese. And that's obviously getting worse and worse. So now here comes Big Pharma with their weight loss drug, which doesn't actually attack the root cause of why you even got there in the first place. So you're just taking this toxic drug that just takes away your muscle mass. It's not even really taking away what needs to be taken away. You still have those issues that got you there in the first place, and you're just perpetuating the awful cycle. Um, yep. but this is why I love stuff like this to really highlight what's going on because this is also why I'm glad about this app. The thing that worries me the most is the fact that by 2030, half America's farmland will be exchanging hands. Most don't have an heir to pass that on to. So here comes the big players that have all the money in the world to give, and they're just going to snatch that up. And who knows what that's going to be used for if used at all, like you were saying, where 85,000 acres is just not going to be used. And so we need to be strategic about that. And that's a good point about homesteading because Twitter is what actually how I even learned about regenerative agriculture last year and and kind of the homestead niche within Twitter. And I've seen it just explode since then. So I'm curious, do you talk to homesteaders too with everything that you're doing with that app and and the beef producers? Because I'm curious what all they have to say about all this. Yes, I have. Um, The ones that I have uh, are really excited about it. Um, you know, there are some that they're doing the homestead just for themselves. And I respect that, you know, they want to, they want to stay off grid and stay, stay quiet. Um, and I understand that I would also push back and say, if you're prepared, but your neighbors are not, you're not prepared when your neighbors are starving, like it, it needs to be discussed and it needs to be discussed, frankly. Um, when your neighbors are hungry, they're going to do what they can to feed their family. And that might look first like them jumping the fence and taking some livestock, but they're starving, like literally starving. That's why I brought up the Holodomor in the beginning. When somebody's starving to death or they see their family starving to death, there's nothing they won't do. So if you think that by going off into the woods and taking care of yourself and not building community and finding a way to support is safety, it's not. We have to be in community. Um. I would like to become more involved in the homesteading community because, um, like I said, I think that that's going to be a movement that significantly impacts our ability as a nation to make it through the years that are coming. Um, When you talk about the health of the population, you know, we talk about it being a national security issue. It's not just the starving side. If if that was the worst case scenario, like the whole lot of more, it's also the 
readiness of the population to defend itself. And that's a relevant conversation because while you and I are talking today, it's the 12th, the leader, a former leader of Hamas, the Hamas just attacked Israel. Um, and it's put Palestine and Israelis in a, in a war, right? And Palestine is not Hamas. Now there might be Palestinians that support Hamas, but that's, those are two different things that people I don't think recognize. But that leader, that former leader just called for a day of terror tomorrow. Yeah. Whether we see it or not, we'll find out tomorrow. But if we see it tomorrow and it's, and it's bad, if, you know, I'm just saying hypothetical, if it's bad, it's the sick population that's, that's at the most vulnerable. And that's over 50% of our population. Like, it's not a good thing, you know? Yeah. And uh, we've just taken a lot of things for granted. You know, I used to work when I first had this idea because COVID was so rough for me and like everybody else, uh, I was, I ended up pulling inventory from Walmart distribution shelves. I just, I just was doing whatever I could to keep food on the table. And what I, what I learned and realized in that position was the amount of freaking waste we have as a nation. I mean, I'm in a, I'm in one of many, many warehouses full of cheap clothes that they're going to wear out super quick and just end up right in the landfill. I mean, it, it was like, I don't know, 300,000 square feet of warehouse space. I mean, it took me, it would take me on a, on a forklift. It would literally take me five minutes to drive from one end of the factory to the other. It's just waste. It's all going to be waste in a very short amount of time. Yeah. So we, we've got to change things as a nation and we, it will, it'll happen whether we want it to or not. The question is how, how hard for it is it for us? Is it going to be because of our level of preparedness or unpreparedness, right? I've, I've always said that the only difference between thriving and surviving in the same environment, like it's a, it's a worst case environment scenario. The only difference between thriving and surviving is your level of preparedness. If things go bad and you're prepared, you'll thrive because you're prepared. If they go bad and you're not prepared, you have not one thing of extra water or one thing of canned or bottled food or you're you're now in survival mode. Where yeah. that person who has the food storage and they've got everything set up, they're going to thrive. They're going to just be thinking about, okay, how do I prepare for the next season? This season's handled. How do I prepare for the next? So on the topic of you mentioned Walmart because I saw a video mm -hmm. that you talked about. You can correct me if I'm wrong with this, that one out of every $4 spent in food is Walmart. And then if the Walmart food supply chain broke in, in three days. Yeah, I guess. Can you just elaborate on that? Because I remember seeing a video and that blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Walmart does earn one in every $4 spent on food nationwide. That's a That's staggering number. Yeah. So when we talk about the big four, it's really the big five. <laughs> and, and Walmart just Walmart just invested in a large, massive meat processing facility in the Midwest. Like massive. It's, it was like a $300 million project. Wow. Um, initially, this was a project that was going to be a bunch of ranchers that came together to build this thing to kind of buck the system. Well, they sounds like they got over their skis. And, and if I'm wrong, I'm... I'm 
you know, my ego's in check. Somebody can call me out and I'm happy to have a conversation with anybody directly involved. But my understanding is they got in over their heads with the cost and had to bring Walmart in as an investor. So they just brought in a centralized market. Now, I also have heard a podcast with somebody that's a rancher who actually consults for Walmart. And Walmart has an interest to source beef in America and regionally. So that could help. So my, my point of that video wasn't to vilify Walmart. I'm not like, yeah. put a target on Walmart. I buy stuff at Walmart. I, I rarely buy any food there, but I buy stuff at Walmart. It's what my family can afford. So it's not about Walmart. It's a, it's a conversation about our, our supply chain as a whole. Exactly. So I met a gentleman who worked in corporate at Walmart in, in, at the higher levels in the supply chain in the supply chain. And he said that we had internal conversations that if our supply chain broke, the nation would be out of food in three days because that's the volume of food they're moving through our supply chain. People jump on comments on there. Well, there's other grocery stores. Yeah. Use a little bit of common sense here. If one in four dollars is spent at Walmart and now it's not available, do you think the other places have the inventory to sustain that? No. They're that's that's why in three days we're out of food. It's like whenever the toilet paper incident at the start of the of COVID. It's just it'd just be like that. Yeah, it's like, oh, Costco's out, but Walmart, you know, just because Costco's out doesn't mean Walmart's gonna have it. Oh yeah, <laughs> did you go look for toilet paper? They were all out. <laughs> so Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 staggering and it's important to know this because this is what needs to be corrected. So with regulations too around, cause I, I still don't know all the regulations around just having a processing plant. And I know yeah. you're talking about profitability too. Are these just heavily regulated that it's hard to start on top of it being hard to be profitable? The regulation, it's the build is expensive. Employees or labor is expensive. Labor wouldn't be so bad if you could hire people that you could count on showing up every day. Like if the, you know, if, if the labor force in this particular industry um, would show up, I mean, a lot of trades are dealing with that. Um, it, you could, you could build a, it would be a little more stable. But the challenge is like one of the biggest challenges we're going through right now is the environmental restrictions put on a plant being built. So the USDA, the U being USDA inspected isn't actually that difficult, but it's the all of the other pieces that tie in. You know, what are we going to do with the wastewater? Does your does where you want to build, does that city have enough water? Because they estimate 200 gallons of water per carcass is what a plant uses. Um, I don't think that's correct, but that's I, they're probably playing it safe with that estimate. So do you have enough water in the city to allow that? And what are you going to do with that amount of water, depending on the plant size? What about all the stuff that isn't edible or used? Where's that going to go? You know, we're looking into technologies like anaerobic digesters that could actually produce our own power or, or compost so we can land apply um, the, that material or integrated wetlands where we can take the water put it into a man-made wetland that actually helps with biodiversity and stuff like that in a, in a, in a particular piece of property. Like there's all, all sorts of really great technologies that we need to be looking into, but regardless, so the, the solution for that one challenge is over a million dollars. Wow. That's a challenge, right? Yeah. That's a huge challenge. 
So the regulations aren't necessarily that difficult. Now, regulations are ridiculous. Like I can have a plant that's a state inspected facility and I can sell packaged meat in the state, but I can't sell it across state lines. I can have a USDA plant and then sell it anywhere in the nation because it's federally USDA inspected. Um, but <laughs> I just saw some recent stuff that they're actually trying to, pr- uh, th- there's another option, which is, Ryan, I have a cow. You buy it for me before I slaughter it. Now it's your cow. Now you could turn around and say, AJ, I'll pay you to process it in your backyard. And I can do that because it's your cow. You have the right to do what you want, right? That's called, a, typically they call that a cow share. So you might buy a whole share, a half share, a quarter share. I think we're allowed to go down to about an eighth. Uh, yeah, an eighth is what what's allowed. Anyway, when I get inspected by the brand inspector, all of the people who bought the share are on there because it's their animal now. It's not me, the rancher. Um, but I just saw some regulations that they're trying to push through recently that says that that's not illegal. It's not legal for me to sell you a cow anymore. Wow. The only people I can imagine trying to do that are the big four that's losing out because more and more people are going that route. I don't, where's the, where's the incentive otherwise? Yeah. And so that's where some of this stuff gets ridiculous and crazy. And you, it's, it's evident that it's because lobbyists that are working for the big four are the ones making these pushes in, in so many different levels. It's the lobbying group that are advocating for the success and the revenue generation of the big four. That's why I say if JBS goes public and, I, and I'm not, I'm not that intelligent. I mean, to be honest with you, this is kind of just observational, but challenge me on it. Tell me I'm wrong. And then I'll pick up on that and learn from it. If you're smarter than me in those, those areas, but it seems pretty evident to me of what's, what's going down. So with all that going on, what can just the average person do to help? Is it just, just, going straight to these ranches and with your dollar or is there other things that we could be doing because that is rather alarming as they're already very powerful and very centralized yeah it's not the saying that you vote with your food dollars is not cliche people need to understand like that that's the difference the reason they're making these regulations is they're afraid because people are starting to wake up and do that so that's how that's how significant it is when you vote with your dollar. So my suggestion, you know, is go to your local farmers market. Um, if you go to one, if you're in a place that has more than one, check them both out because some of them are more of a craft show or craft fair than they are food sellers. It's kind of silly; shouldn't be called a farmers market. But um, <laughs> the closer you can get to the source, if you can shake the hand to feed you, then you're going to have a connection. Look up, you know, you can do a basic Google search. I know I don't, Google's a bad word for some people, whatever. Do a Google search and say, I'm in such and such town. I'm looking for local beef. And some family near you is going to have a website that pops up. Call them. Um, If you're listening to this and you don't know how to call and have that conversation and it's intimidating, I offer consulting with people to teach them how to call. It's kind of a weird thing that that's needed, but if that's you, I get it. We're a generation away from not knowing how to have a conversation about our food because you go to the grocery store, it's in cellophane. 
And so don't be intimidated. You don't even need to pay me as a consultant. Go YouTube it. There's plenty of information to YouTube. If you want the one-on-one hands, you know, you want me to call the rancher with you, that's what I'll do. But if you want to just go about it yourself, do it because you're going to talk to the rancher and then they're going to ask you, what's your, how do you want to cut? Well, that's intimidating. What do you mean, how do I want to cut? Because it, there's what's called a cut sheet. But do the Google search, call them. And, and here's the thing, you don't need me or YouTube. If you call them and say, I'm so new to this, the people that have a website to sell directly, they know they're there, there to educate you. It's up to you to not have an ego that's a, that's a, a, a embarrassed or ashamed or afraid or whatever it is for you to just call them and say, hey, I really want to start supporting my local small farms and ranchers. They will be thrilled to receive a phone call like that. And they will happily walk you through the process. So when you start doing that, that's going to change things. Now, one of the this leads into a conversation that's important, and that's the, the true cost of food. We live in a world where we think the food we buy is the right price. But this highly processed, you know, we used to spend 30% of our budget on food and 8% on healthcare. And don't ask me how long ago that was or if those numbers are exact because they're not. But let's just say we flip that now. I'll bet you it's even worse. It's probably yeah. 8% on our food, but I'll bet it's 50% on healthcare for chronic yeah. health issues. If you're listening to this and you have any sort of prescription in your cupboards, that's the statistic. You are that statistic. If you have a prescription for a chronic health issue, you're paying money that our ancestors didn't because they invested in their food. We have been trained for immediate gratification. And so if I can save money now and go out to the club, but I'm going to pay money when I'm in my mid-30s. I mean, it's getting earlier now. Like they've got boner pills for hell's sakes and they're using 20-year-olds to promote it. Yeah. When I was a kid, it was the old man that was on there promoting yep. erectile dysfunction pills. Now it's late 20-year-olds. That's specifically related to your lifestyle, including your food and your physical activity. So if you have any sort of pill that helps you maintain or accomplish something that your dad or your granddad didn't need, that's your food. And you're now paying for it in another way. And as you get older, you're going to pay more for it. And it's going to get more expensive. And then you're going to be like, shit, I don't have any savings because I'm putting it all into staying alive. Whereas if I paid a little bit more now, maybe it's not even a little bit. Maybe it's more like you call your local rancher. So the true cost of food conversation is that when you buy it locally, that is the true cost of nutrient-dense, healthy food that's going to keep you from having to spend money on pharmaceuticals. So the context of that conversation needs to be far more in depth than just be like, well, it's expensive buying from a rancher. You're just looking at the dollar. You're not looking at the, you're not looking at it as a holistic decision. So it's so true. Have those conversations, buy locally and look at what you're spending money on. Somebody might right now need to stop buying cannabis. They might need to stop buying alcohol. They need to, they might need to stop buying new Xbox games or new Xbox game add-ons or, you know, I'm throwing a bunch of stuff out there yeah. because these are things I'm aware of and I'm attached to, but there's going to be other things of excess that you're spending money on that you, you, you would be better off reallocating that budget towards highly nutritious food. If you're dealing with anxiety and depression, which is through the roof right now, 
that will go away with nutritious food and exercise. I mean, you're 100% spot on. Because for me, for example, um, so I'm 29. And last year, it was whenever I switched into regenerative agriculture and visited farms and ranches to work on. And I don't think outside of being like a school field trip growing up, I'd never visit a ranch or farm, never talked to any farmers or ranchers. And whenever I, I was in that ranch in Colorado again, I remember having their fresh beef and their fresh produce that they all grew. And it was a literally life-changing meal because it tasted so different and so much better than any of the stuff I've ever had in grocery stores. But having those conversations with them was just incredible because whenever, because it, it is intimidating for sure, especially I was intimidated as hell going on to a farm and a city I've never been to. Um, but once you have those conversations, they're very passionate people. They really want to help. Um, like you said, without food, we die. <laughs> Point blank period. And so it's the most important job in the world, in my opinion. So whenever you're having those conversations and, and being able to talk about everything that goes into all of the work they're doing, and then talking about the price standpoint, because you go to the grocery store and it's so much cheaper than the beef you might be buying from a local rancher. Well, then they talk about all the subsidies and regulations and all of that jazz, like you're saying, with the processing, every single touch point has some type of profits. So there's so much that goes into it. And that's why it's so crucial to have these conversations yourself with those local farms and ranchers, because it opens up your eyes whenever you visit those places. When you have that meal together, it really alters your perception of it all. And I think that's one of the best ways to, I guess, think about where your dollar is going for your food, but then also just how you view your health. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent makes a big difference. And, you know, nutrition, you know, we have like, uh, what's they call it? emotional intelligence. There's also, uh, food intelligence or nutritional intelligence. And we've, we've kind of gone away from that. And because everything's been made so convenient for us and it makes a big difference. And when people, when, when you shake the hand that feeds you, you can start asking the questions. You know, one of the biggest questions I get is about the way that livestock or doctor vaccines, especially with the mRNA, mRNA vaccine conversation. Now, that's a true conversation. It's not conspiracy, just so people know. Um, whether you're for or against it, uh, it's wrong to try to make somebody take something that you that they don't want to and because they don't want to they're going to find other ways to administer it so right now it's already been approved for provisional use in pork and chicken so if you're buying pork and chicken from a large company it there's a chance that it's already being treated with mrna technology for vaccinating the animals for that kind of stuff, which the significance of that is that they've now learned how to, once you eat it, it'll cross through the gut barrier and then basically inoculate or treat the, the consumer. Wow. So that's been approved provisionally in pork and chicken. Um, so if you can't get a hold, here, here, here's the, again, the point, if you can shake the hand that feeds you or talk to them directly, you can ask those questions. Purdue may not be doing that, but if you can't get a hold of somebody at Purdue or if you can't go to their website and find out where they make a flat statement, we're not, 
And you're, and if you're against that, then you might want to just assume they are. Um, so I get that question all the time. Are the, are the cows being, uh, given the mRNA vaccine? My answer, ask the rancher. I can't speak for them, but ask them. I'll tell yeah. you that 100% of the ranchers that I've talked to, and I've made it a point to talk to as many as I can, so that's what I'm doing. Not one of them would do that. They won't. They're against it. Whether they did the vaccine themselves or not, some of these ranchers got the vaccine, but they wouldn't do it knowing that the agenda is to do it, to, to make it ha- uh, inoculate people that didn't want it. Yeah. That's um, just crazy. Antibiotics. You buy antibi- you buy a cow from a feedlot, there's a high likelihood that cow has antibiotics in it. Um, there's two camps on that. The antibiotics wear off at a certain time, and so then you don't have to worry about that. But there's another camp that has done the research that says there's actually still trace elements of, of antibiotics in the meat when you eat it. So if you're trying to not have those in, you know, introduced into your system, ask them. I want one because what a what a rancher will do, even ranchers that uh, send their livestock to to a feedlot or have their own feedlot, they they uh, record if they've given their animal doctoring. So tag number five seven eight had got had a treatment of antibiotics. That's a re- that's recorded somewhere. So you can say I would buy from a rancher with no hesitation who uses antibiotics when they need to knowing that they're going to only sell me one that wasn't like, I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to a rancher using vaccines as for calves. Like, uh, and I'll talk about that here briefly, but using antibiotics in their operation when they need to, if they have a sick cow to keep it alive, I'm not opposed to that. I just prefer to not have it. So sell me the one that isn't. Yeah. I trust that they're going to do that because they, they have the record of that. So they're, they're not wrong for doing that. If you go to the regenerative space, nobody's doing that because I shouldn't say nobody, but there's a lot less of that because they're ranging out on free range pastures and they're not confined into the environment that that produces the diseases that require antibiotics. But again, like I said earlier, we still need feedlots to feed America or we'll starve. So this is the space that real talk. That's where we're at right now. You know, the utopia is that everything's ranging free and all this BLM land that exists in the West that's desertifying has far more livestock on it to help regenerate the land and, and all of that. But we're not there right now. Uh, to the vaccine conversation, people will say, I want an animal that's never been given a vaccine. I don't care what kind. I understand that. And I respect that. That's hard to find. Yeah, You're starting to see that more in the regenerative space, but even regenerative producers give their calves a certain vaccine to create, to prevent pneumonia as they're getting older. And that's a common practice, and it has been forever. Um, it's the mRNA-specific technology that's the concern. But the vaccine, what you're treating for, I have personally, I have less concern for that. Now, I know there's some really invested health you know, health experts that would just not advocate for that, and I, and I respect that. You know, I'm just telling you, that's, those are few and far between. Yeah, no, I I agree. And that's specifically with these big packers like uh, Smithfield Foods. If you look at the conditions of these animals, I mean, it's even toxic for all of the employees within these plants. 
because they're just so confined with all of their waste. Uh, and same with Tyson with the chickens. It's just disgusting conditions. The feed that they're fed, they just try to fatten them up as quickly as possible. I mean, it goes back to it's just trying to get the most out of the dollar. So you don't care what you're feeding them, just trying to fatten them up as quickly as possible so you can sell it. It's just all about the numbers games. And so it makes sense that they give them these vaccines and antibiotics because they're insanely sick already and they get more and more sick in the conditions. It's just atrocious. But I guess the last thing that I wanted to talk about, because you mentioned briefly about the BLM land out in the West. Can you just explain what that is and the current issues with that? Because you're saying there's just so much deserted land with all that and that's such a huge opportunity for us for for specifically with cattle and bison just so much opportunity to have that grazed yeah yeah and i should clarify blm the original blm stands for bureau of land management <laughs> yeah i've had that question before how does blm have anything to do with land i was like oh let me let me clarify so the department of the interior which is a division of the federal government they have different branches I may get this wrong, but the Bureau of Land Management is in the Department of the Interior. I think just like the National Parks and um, and uh, Forest Service. I think those are all under that umbrella. So um, constitutionally, the government was never supposed to own land or control land. But when we started settling the West, the original arrangement was that they were going to establish they were going to establish land under the Bureau of Land Management until it could be handed over to the states as they form. So if you look at a map, go look, go, just go to Google Earth and look at the U.S. from, from that. You'll see that the desertification is happening. The driest parts of the country are the West Coast. Now, there are other contributing factors, you know, like the Rocky Mountains disrupt the air currents and the moisture currents when they come from the ocean, you know, uh, over by California and they kind of get broken up and that kind of stuff. So those, those are the effects. But when millions of bison roamed the West, we didn't have desertification. Why? Because healthy soils create local water cycles because of healthy grasses. So when you have healthy soil, you grow healthy plants, a lot more of them. And those healthy plants do what is called evapotranspiration. Basically, they're sweating. So if you're ever in a city and you're walking and it's hot and you can feel the heat radiating off the concrete, but then you walk through a park and you're like, man, it's much cooler here. Even if it's not being watered in that time, that's because the grass of that park is sweating, essentially. It's releasing this evapotranspiration. So it's creating a level of humidity in that area. Well, when the bison roamed the West, they managed the lands naturally. So they went through, they ate the grasses, which triggered this release of mycelia through the soil, right? Mycelia is your fungus and fungal network. So they bite the plant, the plant sheds off its little, you know, I'll keep it simple because I also <laughs> don't have a degree in that either, but <laughs> sheds off all their little tentacles down into the ground that contributes to the soil of the health. The saliva from the tongue of that animal contributes microbiology to the plant that helps trigger growth. The hoof impact almost palpates the ground. And and there's some really fascinating documentaries like Fantastic Fungi that kind of shows this, this pulsing system. 
Um, their manure in, in the in the dry environments this is something that Alan Savory teaches. You have brittle dry environments and non-brittle tropical environments, and it's a scale. In the tropical environments, when a tree falls or a branch or a leaf falls, because it's moist, it breaks down naturally because of the natural moisture. But in the desert, when you only get rains at certain times of year, it doesn't break down unless it passes through the ruminating uh, stomach of a ruminant animal. And then that manure gets put on the soil. And then because there's a lot of animals all over the place, they push it in and the, the hooves are shaped like spades. And so it digs in and creates little pockets for moisture to collect in when it rains next. And so it creates this really fantastic cycle. That is what contributes to the grass, that contributes to the evapotranspiration, that contributes to the local water cycle. 40% of our rain cycle is supposed to be from that local cycle. The 60% comes from the oceans. So um, in the desert west, the BLM controls 90% of the landmass, which also happens to be the landmass that's desertifying at a rapid pace. And part of that is because they're either operating on old information or they're doing it willfully because there are solutions that we can see across the globe in environments that are worse than what we have in the West. Like Alejandro Carrillo in the Chihuahua Desert, that's a worse environment than what we have north of the Mexico border. You know, Arizona is going to be that way. But you start getting north, we got more rain than he gets. And yet the transformation he's made on the Los Domas Ranch is fascinating. Yep. And the reason this is happening is because the BLM will tell my family that run cattle, you can have one pair, that means mama cow, baby cow, per 100 acres. Now, that's not every area, but certain parts of the, of, you know, every area has its own, they call it stocking rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, AU, AUMs is the, is the term. Um, animal units per measure or something like that. Now, when we understand that the only thing that contributes to the soil, not the only thing, but one of the most significant contributions to the soil in the West is manure. But I only have one cow per 100 acres. It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack when you find that manure. But also because it's such a sparsely dense, uh, uh, because the livestock aren't heavily, uh, aren't close together. They're not trampling the manure in. So then when you find manure out on pasture in an in a open range, it's a hockey puck, burnt up, dried up by the sun. And that comes from not enough herd impact and also deworming. If you deworm your livestock, it kills off. If you deworm your livestock and they crap on the ground, dung beetles and other beneficial insects that drill that manure in the ground can't because it's poison. So it just sits there and gets hard and never actually contributes. That's why we have desertification in the West. And organizations like the Savory Institute and Kiss the Ground and Understanding Ag um, and, you know, Alejandro and his crew, all these people, that's what they're teaching is like there's there's a way. It's just the, the policies and the regulations are not up to date. Hmm. So I guess my last question with that, 
how could we help? <laughs> it's a very broad general question, but how could we help, I guess, fix that issue? Mm. So one of my, my initiatives with From the Farm is to create a, net, a network of food intelligent people so when policies are being rammed through that the population has no clue about, that I can share the message and say, we need your help. You know, let's say pie in the sky, I've got 10 million users on, this, on the app. That's 10 million voices to try to stop poor policy or advocate for good policy. Mm -hmm. So we have to come together somewhere. And it also has to be, you know, this stuff is, this is a, this is a, look, people's lives are crazy. They're trying to figure out how to make things, make, you know, make ends meet. They're worried about what all the world issues. So what I'm learning and trying to do is how can I give this information where it doesn't just bore people to death, where it's just enough or like, okay, makes sense. I make, take an action, right? Because I pour over hundreds of hours of content written or video or audio to try to educate myself and I'm only scratching the surface. You know, I can't I can't be an expert in in everything. I just need to have enough to share it so people can get aware. But that's how is is just start paying attention. There's an organization called RCAF. It's R dash CAF C A L F. You uh if you look up RCAF USA, they're an organization that are they're very industry specific. So many people might be like, I don't know what you're saying, but Bill Bowler is the CEO and he is advocating for the small producer and is always working on policies that make sure that they're protected. Uh, a membership to RCAF is only, uh, I don't work for them. I'm just telling you because if I can donate somewhere where it's going to make a difference, a membership to RCAF is only 50 bucks a year, but they take that money and that helps them act on more policy to make sure our food supply chain is protected. So yeah, get, get it, getting involved in understanding the, the significance and the decisions that are being made on your behalf that you don't even know about. That's awesome. Well, thank you for this conversation. Um, I guess the last thing to end on, where would you want uh, to direct others that want to learn more about everything you're doing and following along? Cause everything, this was amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I would love for people to follow us at uh, Utah Beef Producers on Instagram. Um, uh, if you are in Texas, north, and then all the way west, we can we can serve you when we're open. We're not going to be open till March. Um, that doesn't negate that I still think you need to find somebody that's close to you. But if you can't, we can help you. Um, so we're taking on a big project here that, frankly, we need the support of the American population to be a small plant that can can uh, can stay viable against the big four. The other place is uh, feedthepeoplebythepeople.com. So if you go there, we're building an email list that when the app goes live, I can let everybody know. I'm very I'm very respectful of your inbox. I've sent you'll you'll get an email initially. You should get an email initially when you first sign up. But other than that email, I've only sent out two. And that is a list that's been growing for like seven months. And I just do quick updates on here's what's going on. Um, I, just, I, don't want, I don't want people to not stick around because I'm like just blowing them up. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
And then the last place is my personal Instagram, which is being significantly throttled. Um, really? Shadow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's 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 crazy. I grew from 2,700 followers to 100,000 in six months. And in the last month, I've only grown by 400. Wow. Yeah. And I think it's because I'm calling out fake meat. Yeah. And I mean, we didn't even go into that. But uh, so it's at a period J underscore Richards. That's my personal Instagram. I did a call to action yesterday with my my people that are helping follow so far. And by the way, for me, my Instagram, that's a collection of people that are believing this. this is, AJ's been on Instagram for seven years. It didn't matter because I'm not that, I'm not that incredible. <laughs> uh, but it's the mission that matters. And so when I talk about the audience or the followers I have, it's the community. It might be under my name, but it is a, it's a community that I highly respect. And um, so a period J underscore Richards. And so that I did a call to action and people rallied and, and helped. And, and even with that, I mean, that it's been shared over 4,000 times. I've only added a hundred new followers. That's wild. So, okay. So I don't know what's, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if like, maybe most people don't give a shit about the food system and, <laughs> or, or if it's getting shared, but it's only it's stopping right. I don't know how all that works technically. I just know that something's fishy. <laughs> well, thank you again. Yeah, I guess we'll end it there. Awesome. Thank you, Ryan.